This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A life after life is something that, quite frankly, hadn't even occurred to me in the first 33 years of my life. It still hadn't, as I cycled myself to the very edge of exhaustion as part of a 3,000 miles charity road cycling challenge from the United Kingdom to Brazil in the summer of 2016. We called it Ride to Rio. Yeah, it's a long way, and that's another story in itself, for another time. We arrived in time for the Rio Olympics in the first week of August. I was there to work too. I even went to the Olympic opening ceremony, which was a dream come true for me. The following weeks and months were the worst of my life. I was critically ill, unbeknownst to me, for a few hours at least. I was actually a dead woman walking. But frighteningly soon, I wasn't even responding to anything. I was in a coma and about to die. My family were flown in to share my final moments. I survived, somehow but I've lived with the post-trauma of my own near-death experience to this very day. I am healing, slowly but surely. Learning things about myself, my life, my future, and how to live it, to relish it, to love it. I'm Charlie Webster, and this episode is How I Live a Life After Near Death. This is Died and Survived. The summer of 2016. The end of old me. I had to just accept that I'm meant to die now. Accept it and let it go. But it hasn't been enough yet. I haven't done enough. I was meant to have longer to do more. Surely you know that. Who am I even talking to? Who are you? God? Death? If my month in Rio de Janeiro in 2016 scared me, the six years since have scarred me. I have so many questions remaining unanswered. Self-doubt, self-worth, self-survival. To help me open up and explain to you all what I mean, I've invited a friend of mine and podcaster, Tanya Hudson, and Dr. Jan Holden of the International Association of Near-Death Studies to assess and discuss my NDE and the lessons that I've learned about life and my own self, starting with that long cycle ride in July and August of 2016. How long did that take you? So how long were you on the road for? It took about four and a half weeks. Wow. So every day, I think we had one day of rest, but I didn't actually have that rest. I worked. (laughs) Um, Typical me. (laughs) So, um, and it was around about 100 miles a day. So some days we'd do 60 miles and some days we'd do 100, depending on how hard the roads were in terms of like elevation um, and conditions. And also we did it in the summer, so it was really hot, um, especially when we got to South America. And I mean, like to give an idea of how hard it was, one thing that I always remember so much is that probably the second to last week and I was cycling through Brazil, 
and there was just nothing for about four days there was just nothing at all you're just cycling through no man's land but one of the things i remember the most is i kept starting to fall asleep on the bike even when i was cycling like 35 miles per hour and wow. yeah so almost like as if you're driving if you put yourself in a position where you're driving and i think we've all been there where you're so tired and even though you're driving on a freeway a motorway your head starts to nod and it's the scariest most horrible feeling your eyes just can't stay open i was pedaling roughly about 35 miles an hour fast you know along a big open road and was falling asleep on the bike because i was just so exhausted wow. which i think is bizarre because you're physically pumping like blood around your body your heart's going oxygen your muscles yeah my brain was just absolutely exhausted so it just needed to go to sleep anyway so i arrived in um in rio but, but were you were you sick at that point do you think like no. as well as exhausted no i think well i was definitely infected but i didn't feel any symptoms so i know i was infected because of how long um, parasites take to develop within the body so i ended up getting malaria amongst three other things so malaria hemolytic uremic syndrome shigella and chikungunya it's hard to say because i, I was going to say i felt absolutely fine but i didn't feel ill so you know in that sense i was really <laughs> you know like at, at the limit but i wasn't ill in any way like i felt absolutely fine in terms of like illness so then i arrived in rio and it was actually the last day we cycled up to the christ redeemer and for anybody that's been or hasn't been you basically climb on these windy roads to the very top there was buses that take tourists up that almost like were spitting out of their exhaust you know oh and they were like eh, eh, crunching the gears eh, eh, like that trying to get up the um, mountain so that gives an idea i think of elevation it almost feels like you were tipping back on the bike but the first time i felt not okay was at the bottom when i needed to go to the toilet and there was no toilets and i went up to the security guard and asked him if there was any toilets um bathrooms and he just looked at me and just was like, no. <laughs> and so I hid behind one of the buses to go to the toilet. And that's when I felt like my, like I was, my stomach was sore. It felt, even though I'd been to the bathroom, it felt like I needed to go again. And it was that yeah. feeling where I was like, mm, oh gosh. Like, and I just thought, oh no, I've probably just, you know, I'm exhausted. And yeah, it just felt like... <laughs> Like, it just felt like my stomach was going to drop through my bum, basically. <laughs> that, that's the best way I can describe it. I know that's probably... Ugh, but yeah. that's how it felt. But, you know, that's just kind of come to me as you were telling me that story because at the top of Christ the Redeemer, you did a video for everybody that was following you along on your journey. And that video is so joyful and it's such jubilant energetic like pure charlie moment that you were so happy that you'd done it hello from christ redeemer i made it can you believe it i just feel so overwhelmed and relieved and i've just got goosebumps thank you so much for supporting me three thousand miles come all this way this was the goal at the end and i made it <laughs> this is the incredible view as well let me just show you rio 
absolutely beautiful. The fog has just lifted just in time for us to get here at the top. Thank you so much for your support. Just can't believe it. Thank you. Ah, oh, just shows you can do anything. Thank you so much. Sponsor us if you can. Uh, still time, just giving.com forward slash Rio. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I remember filming that video, which went viral. And then I went to various different TV studios down at the Olympic Stadium that we were doing like live shows into because we'd finished the bike ride. And it was like an incredible achievement. And still now, to this day, I haven't really accepted that achievement because what happened after, it all became about what happened after. You know, I've never really hardly spoken about what I did or the challenge or even to friends because it, it all became about the fact that then I nearly died. And then I went to curl up in the bed in the hotel and then again, like that critical voice came into my head where it was like, it's your own fault. You're so stupid to think that you could do this and all these like horrible voices in my head, which actually was a thing that I think stopped me from getting help in the first place. So then all that night, I just sat on the floor of the toilet and that's when I started to be sick. I ended up going to the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games and I was meant to be working and I just sat there, like, again, in a ball with my knees crunched up and I couldn't so bad that I felt like if I moved that I would break almost. And then I did a little bit on camera and as soon as the camera went away from me, I had to bend down again. It's just really hard to stand up straight. Then I went to the toilets and collapsed in the toilets, but I was still conscious. I just was like on the floor in the bathroom of the Olympic Stadium and it was like cold concrete. In that moment, I think that's when I started to feel scared because there was blood coming out of my bottom and out of my nose and there was blood in my like sick, in my puke and my ears were starting to hurt and, and you know, there was just various different things that it, it just seemed like this wasn't right. But contrary to what I should have done, I actually then took myself to this apartment I was staying in on my own and I just sat on the floor of the bathroom again and was just constantly being sick. What stopped you from trying to get help sooner? Because that's now two yeah. days. I think a very critical voice in my head that said that this is your fault and you can't be sick because you've just done this challenge and you're about to broadcast on the Olympic Games. So how can you be sick? How can you allow yourself? And then I think the other thing was this very clever mechanism I have, but it's also very dangerous where I can just block things out and I felt like that's what I could do. Even to the point where I was even hospitalized, I was phoning my agent up, saying to them, tell the people I'm working with that I'll be there the next day. I'll be fine, even though I was lying in a hospital bed. So I think that I almost sometimes convince myself that everything's fine and that I can battle through, which I have done in the past. So I think it's a very good thing because it means I survive a lot of things, but at the same time, it's really quite dangerous because, and I can recognize that now because it means that I don't always ask for help. So I think what happens when, if anybody listening can relate, when you've had a difficult childhood with 
negative role models and abusive role models, you tend to take their voice in your own head and it becomes very confusing because that voice becomes your voice as an adult um, and then you end up just abusing yourself. So when I eventually did go and get help, I was actually put on a drip and said I was severely dehydrated. And then a doctor did some tests and then they pulled the curtain back and just said, you've got organ failure. Your organs are failing. And that's how it happened. And I was like, what? I mean, I wasn't quite what because I was not feeling very well. So it was more like, what? Because it was fi I was finding it really hard to speak. Um, it's like I didn't have the energy to speak. And I felt so sick that I, if I spoke, I would just be sick. And that's what kept happening. I felt like if I just curl in a ball and I'm really still and I don't speak and I don't move, then it'll stop me from being sick. And I was like, what? And it, I, can't, I can't even, <laughs> you can't even quantify it. What do you mean? I'm dying. I, I've, I've just, I've just like been holding my breath. That's how it made me feel. I literally am sitting here holding my breath. It's just such a... Did they even say it to you that matter-of-factly yeah, as well? Yeah, they said it that matter-of-factly and in broken English. Right. So it was like matter-of-fact, broken English, and then it was also written on a bit of paper to show me, just in case I didn't understand. Was anybody else with you at this point? Not at that point, no. Then they said, your kidneys have failed, so we have to try and get you on dialysis, but we don't have a dialysis machine in this hospital, and we need to get you to intensive care and that's in a different hospital. And I was just like, I think I went into almost like shut down my emotion mode where I was like, somebody tell my mom, somebody contact my insurance because for us to be able to get you on dialysis machine and move you to the intensive care hospital, you need to have your travel insurance kick in. And so that really stressed me out. And in a way, it was a really bad thing, but it gave me a focus in a weird way. So it was like, these are my travel insurance details. Somebody contact them, blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, somebody contact my mom. At the same time as like my agent's phoning me and I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> so it's this weird thing that was going on in my head. And I think it was just a big protective mechanism because if I'd have emotionally connected with it, which I did later, but not in that moment, then I think I would have just maybe given up or collapsed in a heap because I'm in so much pain. I was very scared though and then nobody could get hold of my mom because she was like away in like this no reception area so then that really stressed me out that's when I started to get really stressed because then I knew that I needed to be on a dialysis machine and I was feeling worse and worse and worse and in the most excruciating amount of pain where yeah, I just feel like I was being somebody was standing with a knife and constantly stabbing me and hitting me and somebody was doing it from the inside all at the same time. I could smell blood, you know, like the copper metal blood. And I think that's when I started to get quite panicky and irate and, and emotional and, yeah, just really scared. Then I got moved eventually into an intensive care ward. And then as soon as I got in the intensive care ward, that's when I was struggling to breathe, so it was like, and I was breathing like that. And my lungs were starting to shut down and I was just struggling to take any breath. And 
the pain got worse and worse and worse. If it couldn't get any worse, it did get worse. And then I started to really heat up. So it was like I was dripping with sweat, but then I went really cold. And it was like I was in like a really cold, like icy lake. But then I looked around me and there was all these machines and they were setting up lots of different machines around me and starting to put lots of different tubes inside me and and then I think then they start to put me on dialysis which is horrible it makes you like feel so cold it's such a weird feeling and then um, my mum had been contacted and she was on a flight over and um, then I was thinking oh no she's going to see all the tubes she's going to know how bad it is (laughs) like as if I could pretend (laughs) that I was okay it's these weird things that go on in your head She arrived in the hospital and walked in the room and she had a pink fleece on and she had a tan. As in her skin was like really beautifully olive and sun-kissed. But I could smell the outside air on her and, and it just made me feel so nauseous. I remember she came near me and I just looked at her and I screwed my face up and was like, and like gave her a look and she knew the look and the look was don't cry because I'm not going to be able to hold it together that was the look and she knew immediately and I said oh well at least you've got a nice tan (laughs) that's what I said to her that was the last thing I said to her (laughs) and she went well this was one way to get me to Brazil wasn't it and that was all we said to each other in that moment because we knew that we had to both hold it together. Amazing how you you both could communicate just with your eyes almost. Yeah. Yeah, we all just that language, that unspoken language. Yeah, when you know somebody so well. Yeah, mm-hmm. we just looked because I knew she was about to burst out crying and I kind of just gave her a look because in that moment I couldn't have that. And it wasn't like something I'd processed or thought about. It was my immediate reaction. I was really desperately trying to hold it together because I was getting upset and distressed. And whenever I got upset, I couldn't breathe. Mm. And then everything happened so quickly after that where they told my mum that if I didn't go on like a life support machine and I wasn't intubated in the next 12 hours, I would die. So that's how close I was to death. And then we have to put her in a coma because she's not going to survive the next 24 hours and we're not even sure if she's going to survive. And then my mum had to sign to have me put in a coma and on life support and intubated. And then, like, I just remember... I don't understand why they put you in a coma. Why would they need to put you in a coma? Because they needed to shut my body down because it was going to die, so they needed to put me in a coma to protect me, basically. So if they hadn't have put me in a coma, I would have died. So they put you in a coma to shut things down so that you can try and recover. And even though my body was physically dying, I was really, really alert, more alert than I am on a day-to-day basis. I was so alert because there was so much adrenaline pumping around my body. So when they put the life support machine in. I felt them put me under, anesthetize me, but I could feel them putting the the tubes down my throat and my lungs, but I couldn't breathe at the same time. So I'd stopped breathing at that point. 
I remember like fingernails like on my head and it felt like knives and it was almost as if like it was like an animal clawing at my head and I thought that my head was being cut open and it wasn't it was these electro nodes being put on my head to monitor my brain because I had quite a long period of time without oxygen so they were concerned that I was brain damaged but I obviously didn't know they were putting electrodes on my head but I could feel it Mm. and I wasn't meant to be feeling anything (laughs) right so I was anesthetized and paralyzed and I remember desperately trying to cling on to the side of the bed to try and pull myself and yeah and I do remember touching it with my fingers and feeling it and I remember trying to yeah, fight. And they said I fought, like, a lot. <laughs> I was, even in the coma, I was just so distressed because I thought I was dying. I thought my head was being cut open. I thought that was it. This sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, it was. It was like being tortured. I mean, I've never been tortured, but that to me is how I imagine what being tortured is like. You've just got no control over anything. And I was desperately trying to fight because in that moment, it made me realise how... Desperate, I can't think of a better word other than desperate I was to live. Like I so desperately and badly wanted to live, which is interesting in itself to me because there's times in my life where I've not wanted to live and I felt really depressed and wanted my life to end. And it's just in that moment when your life is ending, (laughs) it made me realize how much I wanted to be alive. In that moment, I remember I kept questioning, like I couldn't understand why I was in that situation. In my head, I would kept saying, but surely like I wasn't meant to die at 33 because what was the point then? And it started to make me question the point of life in a bad way. I was like, what is the point? What was the point of me fighting so hard to live my life because It's been a fight from the moment I was born. Like I was born in a situation where my mom had me as a teenager. We were really poor, we had nothing. It was a really unhealthy relationship between my mom and dad. You know, it's not like they were, they were very, very young. And and then, you know, there was a lot of domestic abuse throughout my life, perpetrated by different men. And then I was, groomed and sexually abused as a teenager by my running coach and so there's been a lot of trauma to fight through and then also I really fought to try and like it's such a bad phrase but make something of myself but honestly that's what I felt and I tried to be a voice for people that had been through like really bad childhood trauma and abuse and I had really bad depression as a teenager because of everything I've been through. I wanted to take my life as a 17, 18-year-old multiple times and self-harmed, <laughs> you know, so it's not like it's been exactly easy. And then it switched to, well, maybe I was meant to. Maybe I was meant to die at 33. Maybe that was meant to be it. And then I was like, there's so many things I haven't done. Like, I haven't had kids that came into my head and I you know I don't have kids still now and I don't know whether I will but it was something that came into my head at that moment and then I was like but you know I haven't done this yet and I still want to do this and all these different things came into my head and then it was like 
what about my mom? And then my mom came into my head where, and this is all well, like I've got like a million bear claws like pulling at my hair, obviously it was the doctors and the electrodes and they were plaiting my hair because I've got really long, thick hair. And so they were having to like plait my hair really tightly to try and put the electrodes on. So that's also what I was feeling, which is really ironic because me and my mum have laughed about that since because my mum used to plait my hair really tightly in a French plait when I was a kid that she learned to do. So it's it was all kind of mixed up in a lot of complicated trauma as well. But I honestly think it's one of the motivations that made me fight for my life was the thought, not the thought of me not having what I wanted, but the thought of ultimately breaking my mum's heart. And I mean breaking my mum's heart. And, you know, we've even spoke about it since where my mum said, I don't, I don't know whether I would have been able to live without you. Um, and I felt that in that moment. I felt like she needed me and then I was really angry. So it switched from being like almost questioning, trying to understand, to then grieving, to then trying to rationalise things, to then being really angry. And I was really angry at myself and life and whoever <laughs> like about why I was even in that situation and so I just absolutely was hating on myself when I was like being put in a coma it was like you were trapped in your own head and you didn't have any escape you just had to deal with all these thoughts that you yeah. hadn't had it's like the most intense therapy I've ever like yeah like exposure therapy it sounds awful yeah it was I remember watching this um, like drama horror series where the person got buried in a coffin alive and that's what it was like. I had to turn it off because it reminded me, you know, I watched it since. Mm. That's what it was like being buried alive. Sometimes I could hear things that were going on and I could hear the doctors talking about me. And, but just to put a picture on it, I had a tube in my mouth with tape over it. I had tape over my eyes. I had electrodes in my head. I was attached to a machine. I was hooked up to all sorts of tubes. So I looked like I was dead. But inside, that's not what was going on. Because inside, I was like this thing inside trying to get out of this broken body. And it was like, you know, let me out, let me out. And I was like fighting constantly, but there was no brain waves on the machine. So they thought I was brain damaged. And so they told my mum that there was very little chance that I would survive. And if I did survive, that I'd be mentally disabled and physically disabled. So my mum felt like she'd lost me either way. And so my mum walked on the ward now, whenever my mum walked on the ward, I could sense her and I knew she was there. And then that's when their uh, brain waves would appear on the machine and my stats would go really high and the machines would beep. And how on earth did I know that she was there? Like, I still question that now. And my mum said that every time she got to the door, like, that's when the nurses and doctors would run into my room because that's when I'd start to react before she even got to my door and that's when I would start to react every time. Wow. But 
it became a problem because the doctors thought she was having a negative impact on me. So they started to decrease the amount of time she could be there. And my mum was like fighting against it. And it was the most detrimental thing because it wasn't having a negative impact. It was making me fight. That must have been really distressing for my mum. I know it was. And it was really distressing for me because like when she was in the room, it was distressing though. I know it sounds weird, but I needed her in the room, but at the same time, so I was trying to show her that I was still there. And so I remember like, mom, I'm still here, I'm still here, I'm still here, don't give up on me, don't shut the machine off. Because I could hear the doctors talking that I wasn't there anymore. So I was like desperately trying to show them that I was still there and that it was still me. And I was in there because in my own head, it was still me. And I was like alive <laughs> and kicking <laughs> in my own head. But obviously I didn't look like that. Please don't give up on me, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And it was so distressing, it was so distressing because I couldn't communicate. And that's the worst thing in the world, just being completely trapped. And I remember like my mom and my brother once, cause my brother flew over and they were arguing in my room about water, about who brought the water, because, well, you said you bring the water, but yeah, but you said you bring the water and I'm carrying this and uh, who's brought the water? And and I, I was, you know, in a coma. And I recalled that conversation to them later on. And they were like, what? And obviously they remember that whole conversation. So many things that I remember that were happening around me but the thing that happened when I was in the coma as well was it started to trigger a lot of past events that were going through my head. Mm. And when I was sexually abused, I was abused like on a classroom table in a school. And it wasn't by a teacher, it was by a running coach. And it was like on a hard, cold classroom table, you know, lying on my back and I'd stare at the ceiling. And so then that started to come back into my head because I was basically in a coma, lying on my back. I mean, I wasn't staring at the ceiling, but I was in that position. My eyes were closed. Yeah, and it started to make me panic um, because I felt like, yeah, I was having flashbacks of being abused and then felt like I was there sometimes and it was happening to me again. So it became really distressing because a lot of past memories were coming back to me that were really traumatic. So I was in a really traumatic situation, having my trauma replayed to me. You must have been so exhausted. Yeah, it was completely exhausting because I felt like I was fighting so many things. I was fighting the situation. I was fighting for my life. I was fighting my body to survive. I felt like I was fighting death and I felt like I was fighting my past and the past pain and trauma that I hadn't dealt with, which I hadn't dealt with it. I have now, but I hadn't at the time. So I was put in a coma, put on life support machine, and then I was in that for two weeks. And then I do know from doctors and my mum that toward the end of that two weeks, it was looking really, really grim, like even worse, where they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, all they were doing was keeping me alive rather than treating me. I wasn't improving, I was getting worse, and then I think there was a moment where it just got really bad. And they said to my mum, prepare yourself, like, I don't think she's going to survive the night. And I do wonder if this happened in that moment. We'll never know, obviously. <laughs> 
Um, can't like do any scientific experiment to work out. But from the doctor's point of view, in that moment, I, and it says in the notes that I was aggressively resuscitated. So I really believe it was that moment where I basically, my heart stopped. And I was face to face with this thing <laughs> that was a black mass but it took to me like a male it didn't look like a male form but in my head it was male that <laughs> I was speaking to this male thing but it wasn't a male physical form it just that was my perception yeah um, but it was a black mass and it said you need to come with us and then behind it was these two little boys but they were old so they had like old skin and like Benjamin Button this is serious I'm not laughing about it but that's what it was a little bit like like where they were boys but they were old and they were like in a corner where the door was of the room but I was like upright so I wasn't lying down in my head but obviously I was lying down physically and I was just upright just as if I'm talking to you now and it said you know time to come with us and I was just like what and it was just really basic it wasn't like time to come with us and I was like no it was just like time to come with us let's go and get a pint of milk I didn't say that but it just felt like it was that basic it was that day-to-day -day. nonchalant yeah nonchalant and I was like what and I just was nonchalant back it was like what do you mean and it and, it, and this thing um, was, you know, it's time to come with us now. And I was just like, what, what do you mean? And I just kept seeing, being like, what do you mean? And it was getting a little bit more fed up with me. So a little bit harsher in its, what it was saying to me, less nonchalant, less just everyday conversation. And I said, for that split second, I didn't say no. I just said, well, I've had, I've had enough. Like, I, I literally had had enough. I was in so much pain for that moment. I just wanted to give in because I was just exhausted. I was just, I'd, I'd had enough of fighting constantly. And I don't just mean in that moment, I just mean my entire life. Then something like hit me nothing physical it was my mom and again thinking about what it would do to her and then I was above this room and I can picture it so clearly in my head and it was a sterile room but at the same time it was a church but it wasn't it wasn't it felt like a church but it was very white and sterile and very gleaming white you know where it kind of shines like polish and I was at the very back, kind of above. My point of view was above. And all I could see was the backs of people's heads. I couldn't see me, but it felt like it was my funeral. And my nan and granddad were there, but my nan and granddad have both passed away. So they were both dead. And I remember thinking, are you dead or are you alive? 
like really bait like that I was like are you dead are you alive and like I was so close to my nan and granddad they looked after me as a kid I lived with them when I was um, in my late teens my granddad was like a father figure to me and I remember just seeing my, and I was like oh my nan and granddad's face this is amazing like are you alive are you dead like am I with you and then they turned their back on me and I was like what and then all of a sudden my focus went to my mom and my mom was on her knees at the very front of this gleamingly white polished room that felt like a church, but that didn't look like a church. And she was on her knees screaming. There was then blood and blood kind of came everywhere. All this happened in like, it felt like a split second, like, like that. And like a flick. And then that flicked me into like, no, no. And I just remember being like, no, I'm not coming with you. What about my mum? What about all this? And, and, and then I remember, it was the bizarrest thing, but I was like, what about, I haven't got a will. I need to make sure my mum and my brothers are okay. I need to make sure that he, and at the time, this was my mum's um, partner, my stepdad, doesn't get any money. And I need them to be looked after. And I haven't even sorted that out. And I was getting really distressed. And I was like, but how could you do this to me? How could you do this? How could you create my life and then take it away? And ah. and, I, and all these things. And, and, and my mum and all, all these kind of like, I just was reeling off all these things. And it got bigger. And like its presence was much more overpowering. So I stayed the same height and the same level because at first we were, we, it didn't have eyes, but we were at eye level. It felt like we were talking to each other at eye level. But then this big black mask got bigger and bigger and kind of like above me and was looking above me, but then was like all around me and all encompassing and got more angry and was like, starting to pull me and starting to shout at me and and then I just remember being like no no I'm not going I'm not going like how dare you yeah. in that moment I was like if there is a god I'm so angry at you <laughs> but there was a moment just before that that was quite releasing and euphoric where it was just like oh I just want to give up like oh just release me from it all but it was that that flip into looking over what I thought was my funeral. There was loads of people there, but the people I remember was just my nan and granddad and my mom. But then I think, I do remember my brothers coming in because I was like, I need to look after my brothers, but I don't remember seeing them. And 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 I, it just got like more powerful and overpowering this mass. And then I just fought so hard and I was like almost attacking it. And I had the most powerful amount of strength as if I was in like some superhero science fiction film where you see them like rise and they're so powerful. And that's what I felt like in that moment where there was no way I was going anywhere. And you know, it was like, you have to drag me kicking and screaming, that phrase. And that was true. Um, and these boys were still kind of like ushering me like, you come with us. And, I was like feeling pulled towards them and I was just desperately fighting against this black mass and then it was kind of all encompassing and like engulfed me. And then, but I, I like almost shone within it and that was too powerful for this black mass. And I believe that that black mass was death. Mm. 
I believe that I came face to face with death and that was death talking to me. That sounds so terrifying. You know how like, I don't know, you've heard stories, you know, there was a white light and it was so warm and welcoming and I went towards the white light. But in your experience, you are the white light. You are the warmth and the life fighting against this nothingness. I know it was real and I know that it wasn't you know, my brain playing tricks on me or hallucination or drugs. It was like a real experience and it's clear as day. I could literally be there now doing that same thing and having that same conversation. It's clear as day. It's not a dream. It wasn't a blurry like, oh, well, you know when you have a dream and this person was in it and you remember that but you can't remember what happened and it wasn't like that. It was like, a to me, it's like a real memory. Obviously, I don't know what it was and I'm not saying for a fact that I met death, but it was a memory. And I think as I've as time's gone on, I've questioned it more, whereas initially I didn't question it. I was utterly convinced that I met death. And I think as time's gone on, I've gone like, oh, did I really? You know, and I, because you, you know, you read things and even, even like researching and reading stuff around this, I was fighting to be alive because I was meant to be alive. Like, I do really believe that I was saved and I was meant to be here. So, you know, was it like a not your time thing kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like, because Cause, yeah, like, I, can't, I can't explain it really. But then that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how I see things now. I'm like, how on paper, doctors in Brazil and doctors in the UK have both said that it's a miracle that I'm survived. The doctor I ended up being with in England would call me the miracle. And in Brazil... They thought I was dead. They thought I was going to die. They were like so Charlie, shocked. Sorry, I'm just, sorry to bring it back to this, but you know nobody could ever see any bruises because it was all emotional, and yeah, you know. Um, I think that's what I found quite difficult because you can't see the bruises that it caused and still causes. And when you can't see things, it's harder to empathize with somebody, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have some scars on my groin and I have some lots of tiny scars on my neck. But even them you can hardly see. They're just from all the tubes that were... Because I had loads of tubes in my neck. Um, And then I also had two big scars on my cheeks from the machine. But they went... (laughs) It's like this crazy healing... Yeah, they thought I wouldn't be able to run properly again. And since I've run marathons, I've done Ironman, they thought I would have to have a kidney transplant and not keep my own kidneys. I've kept my own kidneys. It's just all of it doesn't make sense to a rational eye. So then what happened to me? If the if the science and the physical side doesn't make sense, then then how can you even make sense of the my experience of whatever that was. Then the next thing I remember is then starting to gain consciousness again. And I don't you know, necessarily think it happened all in that order, but maybe it did, I, d- I have no idea. Maybe it did, but that's the, that's the last thing I remember about being in the coma. Them bringing you out of the coma. Yeah, yeah, that's the next thing for me that I remember. Like that moment and then starting to be brought out of the coma, but it doesn't happen where 
you just wake up, I think there's a perception that you're like, oh, I'm out of the coma. Like, because I have had a few people ask me that and I'm like, you know, it doesn't quite work like that. You get slowly brought out of the coma, I think over a period of like a week because there was times where they slightly brought me out um, and then things went really bad again. So they had to put me in again. So it's just like testing the water, I suppose. Um, yeah, and that that was it. And that's kind of what I remember. And I just, when I started to be able to regain consciousness and speak, it's funny, regain consciousness because I always had consciousness, but in a physical sense, then I was I was just so convinced that I'd that I had nearly crossed over, as you put it, and that I'd met death. Out of the 10% of people who have a near-death experience, 90% report an experience that's dominated by pleasurable feelings, peace, joy, love, and that sort of thing. And 10% report an experience dominated by some distressing feeling. Dr. Jan Holden offers her assessment of my NDE. And I would describe your near-death experience as being distressing in the sense that it was, I mean, a big piece of it was feeling the anguish of your mother. Mm. That's distressing. And then the fight with the dark mass, you know, was distressing. But as is the case with you, what we know is that down the road, whether a person had a pleasurable NDE or a distressing NDE, they tend to show the same after effects, which oh, is okay. many of the things you've described. Psychologically, their values reorganize. Love is the most important thing. And being able to give and receive love is, and everything that that involves, like the ability to be vulnerable and be discerning and all of that is the highest priority. Uh, serving others, it, like it, it frees the person from having to keep focusing on their own wounds. Mm. They get healed so that their intent is to serve others, to serve humanity. So service becomes a very high priority. And people become less materialistic, less concerned about things like fame and fortune. And it's not that they don't enjoy things you know they still enjoy material things it's that you know if they're able to be famous and use their fame for service but if something happens and it all comes crumbling down okay no not a problem because they're not attached to it and they're not seeking it as a way to try to heal some uh, unhealable inner wound kind of thing so those are some of the psychological after effects. Now, did, did you want to say something before I go on? Because I'm going to I'm going to keep talking here. It's exactly. I'm not even talking. I just like smiling like so much. Um, that's, that's great. All. It's, Carry it's, on. Yes, great. Well, I'm gl I'm glad you're feeling very understood. That's really that's the most important thing. Let me backtrack and say that when I talk about. NDE after effects, you know how at the end of a letter, you might write PS, postscript. So after a near-death experience, it's PS, PS. The first P is psychological changes, like we've just talked about, changes in your values, your goals, and that sort of thing. The first S is spiritual. So people 
uh, after near-death experiences, experiencers tend to become more interested in spirituality, wanting to learn about spiritual matters, reading spiritual material and that sort of thing. Not necessarily religion. And in fact, many NDEers find that religion, even if they were very much involved in religion prior to their NDE, they now find that religion to be too small to accommodate what they experienced in their NDE. Now, some people continue to be involved in religion, some become more involved in it, but more people tend to describe themselves now as spiritual, not religious. Mm. And then some other spiritual things that in some uh, religious contexts are called spiritual gifts, people sometimes develop the ability of precognition, knowing things that are going to happen in the future, telepathy, knowing what other people are experiencing. I wonder whether that you have a sense that that sense of needing to call somebody or knowing that somebody needs something or is going through a tough time, if that seems to have been heightened since your NDE. And maybe not. I think my empathy definitely has. Like I feel a lot. So I don't know whether that's, like I definitely, yeah, I'd say, I don't don't know, that's interesting, but I definitely feel connection and empathy much, much deeper. Yeah, so you beat me to saying that one because that's oh. that's absolutely that deeper sense of empathy. For some people, it can be problematic because if they walk into a room with a lot of people in it and they feel everything that everybody's going through, it's just overwhelming. And some near-death experiencers really take time to be away from society for a while until they learn how to like regulate and manage their empathy and learn how to sort of put up some healthy barriers so they're not just you know out there experiencing what everybody's experiencing what was your attitude about death before your near-death experience and now I never thought about it never thought about it like it never irrelevant yeah I didn't and I don't want to sound ignorant at all or naive, but never came up in conversation. I'd only experienced my granddad dying and my nanan. My nanan didn't have as much of an impact because she was ready to die and she was in so much pain and she had dementia and I I almost wanted her to just... Yeah, be relieved. Be relieved. So Mm -hmm. obviously I was heartbroken, but my granddad was a surprise. And so that was... But I've only suffered that one one really big moment of grief and that was my granddad and and I at the time and I don't it's not necessarily because I believe anything it's because I feel like I want the comfort of my granddad that I believe that he you know is still watching over me but it's yeah but it's not because of a religious or a preconceived belief it's purely because like I want that comfort from my granddad so I Mm -hmm. choose to believe that he's Mm -hmm. that's because of also I carry the influence of his life on me so I feel like it might not be him spiritually but it's his influence over me yeah because he had such a strong influence on me yeah so apart from that I don't feel like I've ever in my day-to-day life thought about it really encountered it 
it's not something I feared either, but the reason why wasn't because I don't fear death. I think the reason why I didn't fear death was because I almost felt quite indestructible. So it never... seemed like a real possibility. I'm not a risk adverse. (laughs) I'd say I'm a risk taker. I'm adrenaline junkie. I am like the yes, let's do it person. I was always like very physically strong. So it never... I don't don't want to give a bad perception of myself, but it never came into my mind Mm -hmm. until this, which is why I find also what happened to me from an outside perspective, say if I was looking at myself in, curious, because it was a complete shock what happened to me when I was ill, complete shock. And even to the point when I first started to get bad symptoms and it happened really quick, where I didn't get help to start with because I was like, no, I'm fine. But I wasn't fine. Whether your character is vulnerable or indestructible, as I had felt despite so much trauma and abuse in my earlier life, death is often a sudden, shocking encounter. Do I count myself unlucky to be one of the 10% of end years who encountered a malevolent entity trying to pull me from this life? Or, I don't know, do I reflect on the positives that maybe I was meant to suffer in order to survive and eventually thrive? Episode 3 will delve far deeper into these encounters, whether friendly and offering hope or fiercely threatening hopelessness. This journey is full of further surprises that we'll share together. I saw them find me. I saw the ambulance come. And, you know, I I wasn't distressed with this at all. It, It just... I I was very calm and very serene where I was at. Just, I seemed to be part of everything, you know, the the grass, the wind, the sun. Saw where they called my parents, who lived several miles from here, from this place. In the same way, I was just observing, and I was taken to the hospital. And, you know, it, it wasn't upsetting. It was very peaceful. It's... I seem to understand things. I I wasn't in pain. Died and Survived is hosted and produced by me, Charlie Webster, alongside my dear friend, Paul Woods-Turley, with research and production support from Jill Hoffman and Kyle Epler. Recording by Stephen Sletton, edited and sound designed by Aaron Florence. Lionsgate Sound, engineered by Pilgrim Media Group.